David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned Yahweh. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And Yahweh afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, when the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of Yahweh and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether Yahweh will be gracious to me, that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? <clears throat> I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went in to her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And Yahweh loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones who are going over for children's worship, this is first grade and under, they can line up here at the door, and Miss Brittany and Miss Savannah will take them across the way. All right. Well, today's text is hard to deal with. Um, as a, a preacher, it's tempting to want to skip it and uh, to move on to the next text. Um, but as it turns out, the next text is not much uh, easier. Um, it's not that I find this text hard to believe. It's not that this text confronts my sin and I'm uncomfortable with that. No, a text like this easily offends our sensibilities. On a first reading, it kind of strikes a, a, a wrong kind of nerve. This idea that this child would die because of what David had done. So what do we do, what do, we do with a text like this? I'm going to try to make it simple. As simple as ABC. Unfortunately, in the translation from English to Portuguese, the ABC doesn't work out. So sorry about that to our Portuguese speakers here this morning. It won't be quite as simple. But what do we do 
When we don't like what the Bible says, well, first is A, allow the text to speak for itself. So we're going to use today's uh, text, 2 Samuel 12, 13 to 25, as kind of a case study for what to do when we come across a, a passage of Scripture that just really kind of we find offensive, we're uncomfortable with. So what happens in this text? Well, as we've seen over the last several weeks, David had sinned with Bathsheba. They committed adultery. And then David put her husband to death. And after Nathan, the prophet, confronted David, David confessed his sins in response. And so what happens after he confesses his sins? Look again at the text, chapter 12, verses 13 through 15. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned Yahweh, the child who is born to you shall die. Then David went to his house, and Yahweh afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. So David's life is spared, but the story doesn't end there. Nathan then declares that his illegitimate child with Bathsheba will die. So what does David do? David prays and prays. He fasts. He prays all night long that this child will be spared. And God says no to that prayer. The child dies. But then, as if to add insult to injury in this tragedy, how does David respond to the child dying? Rather than falling to pieces, he cleans himself up, and he goes to worship the Lord. And his reasoning, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. The whole story just feels awful. Uh, (laughs) So what do we do with this? Well, if we can set our emotions to the side for a moment and allow the text to speak for itself... What is this story trying to teach us? What is it trying to communicate to us regardless of how we feel about it? Well, first is teaching us this, that even in the most confusing and devastating moments, God is still good. Even when things seem horrible, God is still good. Well, how does the text show us that? Well, we see it in David. David, after this intense prayer for this child's deliverance, David, after God says no to his prayer, David responds with worship. It's unbelievable. It's so unbelievable, even his servants don't believe it. They expect David to despair even of life itself. Look at verses 18 through 20. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said... Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he didn't listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of Yahweh and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Do you know what this text reminds me of? 
It reminds me of Gethsemane. What happens in that story at the end of Jesus' life? Jesus, the night before he is crucified, prays with emotional intensity. He prays all night asking if it's possible to be spared the cross. Jesus, like David, asks because he knows that God listens. Because he knows that God cares. And because he knows that God wields power. He's the king of all kings. But how does Jesus' prayer end? He says, my father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. How can Jesus say that? How can David worship on this horrible day? Their acceptance of God's response to their prayers is rooted in a firm knowledge that God is good even when it seems like he isn't. When you read a text like this, it can begin to feel like God is this cruel, detached watcher somewhere outside of creation. He doesn't know our pain. He doesn't know what we're going through. But the fact that Jesus became man, the fact that he suffered sickness and and temptation and all the difficulties, even death. The fact that Jesus prayed this prayer shows us that God not only knows and understands our pain, but he himself went through it. He experienced our pain alongside us. And so David and Jesus pray in a similar way. They pray knowing not only that God is sovereign, but more than that, knowing that God is, that God always does what is right. They accept the will of their father. They accept the result of his prayers, even in this devastating circumstance. So that's one thing the text is trying to teach us, that in the most confusing and devastating circumstances, when there doesn't seem like any order or sense in any of it, we can still trust that God is good. But second, the text is teaching us that because God is good, He punishes sin. So for the last three weeks, we've been looking at how God disciplined David through Nathan. But this here, the death of David's son, this is something different as far as I can tell. This doesn't read like discipline to me. This isn't an act of the father calling the son back home. This is punishment for what David did. Why why would I say that? Well, first of all, Deuteronomy 28 says this. These are God's commands to Israel. This is what happens if they don't obey. It says, if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statues that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. The increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Yahweh will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. So discipline, as we saw over the last three weeks, is about restoration. It's a parent calling a rebellious child back. But curses, that's different. Punishment, that's different. What is punishment? Punishment is retribution, restitution, it's satisfaction of a debt. 
I make this distinction clear with my children, and I encourage you to do the same with your kids. We discipline our kids. We don't punish our kids, right? We're not making them pay for the sins they've done. and Instead, we encourage them to go to Christ, the one who has paid for their debt. So let's think about this. What is the debt that David owes? What is the restitution that, that needs to be made that's so severe? Well, every sin that we commit has a cost. A debt that comes with it. And it might be helpful to think of a vertical debt, a debt to God because of our sin, and also a horizontal debt, a debt owed to people, to others, to humanity, to the world. What's our spiritual debt? What's our vertical debt? God says that the punishment for any and every sin is death and hell. And that debt to God must be paid. Now, you can pay that debt, or Christ can pay it for you. This is the message we saw last week in Psalm 51. If you trust that Jesus died for your sins, he paid your spiritual debt to God forever. You're forgiven. On what grounds? Jesus paid your debt. He did it in his death and in his descent to hell. That spiritual debt, that vertical debt you owe to God is satisfied in the cross of Christ. But just because I'm good with God doesn't mean I'm good with the state of Louisiana. (laughs) It doesn't mean that I'm good with the people that I've sinned against. So there may be outstanding debts to society that still need to be paid. So forgiven Christians can still go to prison. Christians forgiven by God can still get fired from their jobs. Christians forgiven of sins may still have their sins catch up with them. It's not retribution from God. There's no debt between you and God anymore if you trust Christ. But there's still this vertical debt often to be paid in this life. Well, how do we see this in David? Well, spiritually speaking, his debt to God for his sin was paid in full by Christ. But who is David? He's the king of Israel. He's the king of the nation that that lives according to the book of Deuteronomy. So King David still owes a debt to his nation. For a king of God's holy nation to have a faithful soldier killed... So that the king could take the soldier's widow as his own to cover up for his own adultery. On a civil and national level, that must be answered for. And the death of this child is not only a fulfillment of the covenant curse in Deuteronomy 28. It's also a fulfillment of David's own fourfold curse of himself in verses 5 and 6. If you remember, we'll read it in a second. But if you remember when Nathan came to David, he told him a parable about this rich man who had taken a poor man's one little ewe lamb that he loved and how he killed this lamb to serve his guests. And David was incensed over the death of this lamb. And what did David say? Look back up in in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 12. It says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're the one who has done this. And so the king has spoken this fourfold curse upon himself. Ironically, Deuteronomy didn't require that. If you had killed someone else's lamb, you had to give them another lamb and then a little bit percentage-wise on top of that, right? So David goes beyond the requirements of the law, beyond the curse of the law, and heaps this fourfold curse and death upon himself. 
So when this child dies, this is the first of four severe punishments that we're going to see happen to David throughout the remainder of 2 Samuel. So here's what I believe is the clear teaching of this text. Your debt to God for sin will be paid in one of two places, in hell or on the cross. But our debts to society must be addressed in this life. Now, you may protest. What about the people who get away with sin in this life? What about the people who don't get arrested? What about the people who don't get declared guilty? What about the ones who don't pay their debt to society? Well, two thoughts on that. First of all, justice in a fallen world is never perfect. It leaves us longing for eternity. And in those circumstances where their debt to society is not paid in this life, in hell, it will be paid in full. But the bottom line when it comes to this text, let's not call, or when justice happens, let's not call it injustice. God is not the guilty one in this scenario. David is. David made his choices already when he chose to commit adultery, when he chose to commit murder, and then when he heaped this fourfold judgment on someone supposedly who'd only killed a lamb. So if anyone's character should be on trial in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, it's not God, it's David. And despite the terrible sadness of the scenario, David realizes that God is not an unfeeling sovereign, that God is good. And if God was not good, there would be no justice in this life or in the next. But because God is righteous, because God is good, he is at work to bring an unjust world to rights. When Christ returns, there will be perfect justice on this earth. And you and I, as followers of Christ, are called to be people who are working for justice in our relationships, in our homes, in our communities. Justice is something that is dear to the heart of God. The irony is in the previous point I compared David to Jesus in Gethsemane. But what's the comparison point here? David is like Pharaoh. God took the life of Pharaoh's firstborn son as a punishment for not listening to his clear commands. And oddly, I've never heard anybody question God's ethics over that text. And here, God does something very similar to a treasonous king. He takes the life of David and Bathsheba's firstborn son, and when he does, it's an act of justice born out of God's goodness. David was warned in Deuteronomy, he ignored the law of God, and then he cursed himself four times, and now the, just, the hammer of justice has fallen. So, if we want to allow the text to speak for itself, what is the text trying to teach us? That even in the most devastating and confusing of situations, God is good. And because God is good, punishment for sin happens. Now, you may still not like that. <laughs> uh, I encourage you, uh, you guys all know Josh Elder, a good friend of mine, Methodist pastor here in town. He has a podcast called Let the Bible Speak. Um, you can look it up on Apple Music or whatever podcast things you use. They interviewed me last week uh, on their podcast, and we ended up, I was working on this sermon, and we ended up talking about the things we don't like in the scriptures. So I encourage you to, to check that out. This is not the only passage of scripture that I read. And it, if I've read this before from my quiet time in the morning. I don't walk away from this with a spring in my step. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think you're going to come out of church today saying, man, what an encouraging sermon that was. Some of these texts are just hard. So what do we do? It's not easy, 
But I'm trying to make it simple. As simple as A, B, C. First, we allow the text to speak for itself. But here's B. Balance your conclusions with other texts. Now, some of you have sadly heard me refer to this text before in pastoral situations. Because this is one of the key texts that I go to when children die prior to a profession of faith whether they've been born or or was a miscarriage. And believe it or not, I go to this text for comfort in those terrible times. Because what does David say in verses 21 through 23? He says, it says, uh, Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether Yahweh will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. But he will not return to me. So is David saying that he expects to see his child again in heaven or in the resurrection? I believe he is. Most likely the resurrection because The idea of heaven really hasn't developed yet in in the scriptures at this point. David's level of comfort after his son's death seems to imply that David does expect to see his son again in eternity. But is that the point of this text? No. Uh, That's not what this scripture is laboring to teach to us. So a text like this, especially a narrative, isn't made to bear the weight of that terribly sad question of what happens when children die. But that's why we have more texts than just this one. If I had this text alone to answer that question, I would be heartbroken by its lack of clarity. And that's why we have B, balance your conclusions with other texts. When we find texts that are difficult and unclear, we can usually find comfort and clarity in other biblical texts. Now, for the sake of time and for all of our hearts, no one really wants to dwell on this topic for a long time. So I'm working on a brief paper wherein I'm going to express my view at length on the matter. I'm going to go to all the different texts, but to provide a salve for your hearts. Here's what I'm going to tell you. I've been doing the footwork. I've thought about this for a really long time. I've even changed my view on this a little bit in recent months. Here's my conclusion balancing this text with others. And oh, I don't have it in here. It's just in your worship guide because there's no blanks. I wanted it to be uh, super clear. So God's actions and character throughout the scriptures suggest two things. First, that children of believers like David who die prior to a profession of faith go to heaven. That I'm very confident about. Secondly, God may act in the same way toward the young children of unbelievers as well. So I'm very confident about that first point. David's comfort as a believing parent becomes my comfort as a believing parent. The second point, though, you'll have to read my paper. I can't say it with 100% confidence because the scripture doesn't address it directly. But there's enough evidence to make me think it's true. And my heart inclines me to hope that it's true. Here's reality. We can live with do- in kind of a world of dry, cold doctrine and the academic application of texts. But let us not forget the compassionate heart of God shown throughout the Bible. Is not Scripture intended to reveal God to us and to stir up our affections for Him? 
So the Bible never directly says what happens in these terrible situations. But God's heart and God's actions consistently toward the poor, toward the forgotten, toward the defenseless, and the young argues that we should at the very least lean in a direction that is more inclusive in these cases. And the lack of clarity surrounding this issue in the scripture, what does it make me want to do? It makes me want to tell everybody about Jesus. It makes me want to tell unbelievers that forgiveness of sins can be had for them and their children through Christ alone. Jesus loves them. And Jesus loves their children. This is how we deal with these difficult things. We allow the text to speak for itself, and when we find it to be unclear or difficult, we try to balance that text with other texts, balance our conclusions with other texts. And now here's C. Cultivate humility in light of the beliefs of other Christians. So today's Reformation Sunday... And the Protestant Reformation put the Bible back in the hands of everyday folks where they could read it in their own language. And we believe that you can read the Bible, you can understand the Bible. And while individual Christians can understand and interpret and apply Scripture on their own, that's not how God designed it to happen. We were meant to read the Bible in community with other spirit-filled Christians. So when you find a text that you don't like, an idea in the Bible that you don't like, I want to point you to three different communities to interact with. And I think you'll find or learn some humility about your own position and your own understanding from them. First, listen to what our forebears have said for the last 2,000 years. Second, Listen to what your local and denominational leaders say. And third, listen to other Trinitarian traditions around us. So first, listen to 2,000 years of church history. We're not the first people to ask these questions. So go back and see what others have said. You might be refreshed at the breadth of disagreement and the breadth of reasonable options there might be. The text may turn out not to be so distasteful as you once thought or... You might find other Christians from long ago who have not only felt the same way as you, but are also strong, persevering Christians to whom we look up, right? So listen to what our Christian forebears have said. Second, listen to your local and denominational leaders. When the the Reformation threw off the yoke of Roman Catholic authoritarian dogma, they didn't intend to say pastors and elders and traditions are just no good. Don't have them. Get, Get rid of them. No, they were just saying, your leaders aren't above Scripture. So if you come across a text that is unclear or challenging to you, it's okay to ask my opinion on it. It's okay to ask the elders. It's okay if the elders even disagree with me on how they read that text. Our denomination has theological position papers and confessional documents that address these ideas. So listen to your local and denominational leaders as well. But third... Listen to other Trinitarian traditions around us. Listen, I love being Presbyterian. I love being Reformed. But we're not the only people with the Scriptures. We're not the only people with the Holy Spirit. So it's okay to ask your Baptist friends what they believe. It's okay to ask what the Methodists believe. It's even okay to ask what the Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox believe. The more we cross-pollinate with Christian brothers and sisters... It challenges our views, it sharpens our views, and it humbles our spirit as we deal with these difficult 
issues. So when you don't like what the Bible says, it's simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. It's as simple as A, B, C. But it is tough. We allow the Scripture to speak for itself. We balance our conclusions with other texts, and we cultivate humility in light of the beliefs of other Spirit-filled Christians. Now, this was a difficult text, and 2 Samuel doesn't get any easier. Um, From here out, it's just pretty tough. But I want to be gentle with your hearts, especially after this text. So we're going to hit the high points, and we're going to miss a lot of narrative in the process. But if you want to keep up with the whole story, and I recommend that you do, in your sermon notes, you'll find a reading plan for this week. We'll have a reading plan for this week and then for next week where you can read kind of like a half chapter a day, and you'll keep up with the narrative so when we jump in, you won't be totally lost. But just a little bit to read each day so you're able to see the whole tale of David's punishment uh, as it's unfolding. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your scriptures, and we confess that we're not you. And when we come to read your word, um, we need your illumination. We need you to help us read it and understand it and see the goodness in it, especially a text like this one. And Father, this is not the only text in Scripture that is hard for us to deal with. And so I pray, oh God, we here at Faith Presbyterian Church, and really I pray for all of our brothers and sisters here in St. Tammany, that you would help us to submit to your word, to love your word. And Lord, when we come across a text like this, to go through this process of letting the text speak for itself, just letting it be what it is, but then balancing our conclusions with other texts and listening to other Trinitarian traditions uh, locally, denominationally, around us, and here in the body of Christ, so that in, in, throughout the, the history of the church, so, Lord, that we can have joy in your word. As we're about to sing, your scriptures are a foundation for everything that we believe. So, Lord, we pray that you will help us to have a firm faith in Christ to have a firm rest in his word. Lord, may we be people of the word who honor Christ and how we read it and how we live it out. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.